Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to chapter 2 verse 3. I am reading from ESV. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bed of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work and he, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. And from all his work that he had done, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And because on it God, and made it holy, sorry, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Please take a seat. And uh, let me thank Derek for leading this service so far this evening. Uh, and, and let me add my welcome to his. My name's Johnny, if we haven't met before. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here. And um, thank you very much for joining us this evening. We'll be spending the next few minutes thinking about those verses that have been read for us, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 together now. And so it would be helpful um, both to me and to you, I think, if you could have that open in front of you over the next few minutes. Before we, we think about it together, um, as always, I'll ask for God's help of us. So let me lead us in prayer. The psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our God and Father, we praise you as the majestic God of all creation this evening. And we pray now that as we spend time over the next few minutes thinking on you together, thinking of you together, we would each see that majesty all the more clearly. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, it is uh, really good to see you this evening, not least because I'm aware that it is uh, holiday time for schools, and so know that quite a few folks are away this weekend. And uh, anticipating that that would be the case, I decided we'd line up 
um, something of a holding sermon this evening. We wouldn't tackle anything too big or weighty tonight. So this evening, we're only really going to be thinking about three things, minor issues, really. Firstly, who we are as human beings. Uh, Secondly, uh, what we're here on earth for. And thirdly, where the universe is ultimately heading, which are no big deal. I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, In seriousness, we are dealing with some some really big stuff tonight. And uh, it isn't just big stuff. It's, uh, as Willie mentioned last Sunday evening, it's foundational stuff. Foundational for humanity as a whole and for all creations at all times in all places, with no less so the culture we live in in 21st century Scotland. We do live, don't we, in a a culture of confusion, where uh, people are searching for answers to to existential questions in all sorts of different places, and often in places that can't really give us those answers. People are searching for an answer to the question of, of why we are here, for example, and of why human life matters. And they're trying to find answers to those questions through, through scientific investigation or through empiricism alone. And you experience that every time you attend a humanist funeral, if you've ever done that before. As people struggle to hold on to the belief that human beings are nothing more than biological accidents that we are vehicles for passing on DNA one generation to the next, at the same time as explaining why a friend or loved one's life matters so very much to them. Empiricism doesn't really cut it at the graveside, does it? We're searching for answers too to the question of who I am as a human being and of what it is that defines me. And we're trying to find answers to that question based on how I feel about who I am. And again, we're finding that we're coming up short. Because how people feel is sometimes at odds with objective, physical, or physiological realities. And when those two things clash, well, we've got no real framework for deciding which one should win out and why in our culture. All of which means that the ground we're on tonight and over the coming few weeks is every bit as prescient now as it ever has been. Because you see, the Bible explains with with coherence and with rigor, and it's rigor that really does withstand scrutiny, why human life matters. Explains who we are as human beings and, and, and what we're here for and where things are ultimately heading. And not only does the Bible's explanation of all of that stuff withstand scrutiny, I also want to put it to you this evening that it is also the most liberating, the most attractive explanation you will find anywhere in the world. And so with all of that in mind, we're going to have a think about what Genesis 1 tells us, firstly, about who we are. Who am I? You are a human being created in God's image. Now, the opening verses of of this whole book of Genesis, of the whole Bible, in fact, they establish a rhythm, a pattern of creation. And we saw that pattern last Sunday night, if you were here. It was a, a a repeating poetic rhythm. And God said, let there be. And it was so. And God said that it was good. There was evening and there was morning. That pattern is repeating and it is poetic. That's how Hebrew poetry works, not principally through rhyme, 
but through pattern and rhythm. And it's important we notice that rhythm in Genesis 1, because when that rhythm breaks, we're able to clock that something different's happening. Perhaps even that something important is happening. And that is the case in our passage this evening. Because you see, so far in Genesis 1, God has brought about the whole created order, and it has all been good. Day 1, it was good. Day 2, it was good. And yet we reach day 6. God assesses his work, if you like, and his conclusion is different. Notice that with me, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We're being told that this is the peak of God's creative work on day six. So what is it? We're forced to ask ourselves, what is it that tips his assessment from good to very good? Well, again, just scan with me. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is people. People made in the image of God, in his likeness. They, we, are very good, says God. And there are multiple implications of that. Because you see, physically, our bodies are made up of fat mass, of water, of protein, of bone mineral content, of non-osseous mineral content, and glycogen. That's what you're comprised of, more or less. And if, if that collection of, of, of chemicals and, and, and materials came about by chance through blind processes, then I'm going to be frank with you this evening. Each of you here sat before me tonight is of the same value as a bag of fat, water, and bones. But you are worth so much more than that. You're worth more than a bag of biological material. You have real value. And so does everyone you meet. You have never met a person that didn't matter, who wasn't valuable. Now, we would never say that one person matters more than someone else in our culture. Incidentally, that's a testament to the historic influence of Christianity on our worldview. We don't often clock that, but that is true. And yet we can sometimes behave as though one person matters more than someone else. See, we wouldn't dream of, of, of treating our manager at work or, or of someone who's quite senior, perhaps, in their own workplace without respect or dignity. But we might have no problem treating the person who is junior to us in our workplace. Or perhaps the person who answers the phone at a call center. As though they don't really matter. As though they're not really valuable. The Bible says they do matter. They matter a great deal. They are an image bearer of the God of the universe. They are loaded with value in and of themselves. That's not me saying that. God says so. So Genesis 1 has implications for how we treat the people we meet, because people made in the image of God matter. And it has implications too for how we treat people whom we might not meet. See, Genesis 1 would speak right into industries 
for example, industries that are prolific in our culture, like the pornography industry. One of the lies that people often tell themselves when they engage with pornography is that it isn't really hurting anyone. It's all on a computer screen and the people involved aren't affected by me at all. And yet you see that as a lie. It's a lie on two levels. Firstly, the destruction which the pornography industry wreaks on real people's lives, the people trafficking and abuse that it propagates is horrific. There are real flesh and blood victims, victims who are made in the image of God. And secondly, even if there weren't, the people behind the screen, they are real people. They are made in the image of God. They have dignity and value and worth. And you see, instead, an industry like the pornography industry would have people be treated as a thing, as an object that exists for someone else's pleasure. See, if if you are a Christian, Genesis 1 ought to shape how we see the world around us, the people we meet, and, and the people we don't even meet, but nonetheless interact with. And if you're here this evening and wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I'm going to ask you this evening to, 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 to think on that idea that the Bible does explain why people really matter. Because a secular worldview will take for granted that people do matter. It makes a great deal of, of human worth and of inalienable human rights. But it has absolutely no framework for why that should be the case. Because being frank, what, what value does a bag of fat mass, water, protein, bones, and glycogen really have? But you see, the Bible says that we do matter. Because our maker made us to matter. Made us in his image. And that is a far more coherent explanation for why we innately sense that people are valuable than any explanation you will find anywhere else. So even if you aren't convinced by Genesis 1 yet, let me at least ask you to interrogate your own explanation for why people matter, where that value comes from, and interrogate it with the same rigor with which you would interrogate the Bible's explanation and see which one stands up to scrutiny. That is the first implication, I think, of what we've thought about so far. The Bible makes sense of why we matter as human beings. But not only does it make sense of why we matter, it also makes sense of who we are. Because you see, historically, who we are as people was often understood by reference to objective realities. Uh, Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I am a Gilmer because I am part of the Gilmer family, for example. I am Scottish because I was born in Scotland. And because in the sunshine my skin doesn't tan, it goes pink. Now, all of those factors are rooted in some kind of objective reality. They arise from from things that are outside of me, outside of my control. But in recent years, things have started to shift a bit. And today, human identity is a bit more of a a sort of do-it-yourself project, where where personal feelings and and decisions are what really matters, not external or objective realities. And again, if you want me to illustrate that, the the, the clearest evidences of that are in current discussions around transgender ideology, where gender identity is determined subjectively by, by, by reference to how someone feels rather than what their body says objectively. Now, we're going to to return to that in more detail in Genesis 2, which addresses gender more directly, I think. But even here in Genesis 1, 
well, that view would be pushed back somewhat. It would say that you don't get to make you. You don't get to decide or to define who you are or what you are. God made you. He gets to tell you who you are and what you are. Now, we might immediately think of that as being a restrictive thing, not least in our culture, and that it's a far more freeing thing to just decide who I am with a blank sheet of paper in front of me based on how I feel that day than being told who I am. But again, I'm going to put it to you this evening that 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 inference is a lie. And that being told how things are really meant to work, being told how you were created to flourish, it is a freeing thing. It frees you to live as you were literally made to live. That is our first point this evening. Who am I? You are a human being created in God's image. I am aware that may raise questions for some of us. If you do have questions, please do speak to me after the service. And again, we'll return to that idea in weeks to come. But not only does does Genesis 1 explain that you were made, it also tells us why you were made. And that is our second point this evening. What am I meant to do here? You've been created to fulfill God's purpose. Now, I, I mentioned at the beginning of our time together that day six breaks with the pattern of those first five days. But it doesn't just break with the shift from good to very good with God's assessment of things. There is also a shift in the content when it comes to the content of day six. And just, you don't even need to read the text to see that. You can tell by just a cursory look at how much airtime is given to each of the days. Just scan over the text in your Bible and you'll see around twice as much text is given to day six than to any of the preceding days. And the main main focus of all that text in day six is an explanation of the role and of the purpose that God is giving to people. Uh, Just notice that with me. It starts with God stating his intention to create before he actually does that in verse 26. And then in case we, we, we miss that or we misunderstand what he's really saying, he then repeats it as a command in verses 28 to 30. And it isn't just repeated there, it's also defined more closely. Verse 28, read that with me if you would. Be fruitful, says God, and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God's explaining what it means for people to have dominion, rule. It means filling the earth. It means subduing it or or, or managing it and ruling over the rest of the created order. And given what we've already read this evening, that does make sense. Because man is created in God's image. And so what's being described in verses 28 to 30 is is a representative rule, if you like. It's a vice rule. Human beings ruling the world on God's behalf. Now we'll come to quite a specific application of that idea to how we think of our purpose as human beings in a minute or two, day by day. But it does also have implications for how we think of the earth itself. I once heard a university lecturer describing Genesis 1 as dangerous verses, because in his words, they give human beings all the encouragement they need to destroy the planet. That's what he said. 
And it's fair to say that may well have been how these verses have been used at, at times throughout human history to justify the destruction of the created order. That isn't the only way they've been interpreted, though, particularly in, in recent years. They've also been used to support the view that, that humanity's sole purpose here on earth is to care for the planet for its own sake, almost as though human beings are, are, are sort of like squatters here, and that the house we are squatting in is worth more than we are. But you see, neither of those views, that, that sort of destructionist view, nor that purely protectionist view, quite captures the sense of verses 26 to 30. Because firstly, they aren't a blank check to exploit and to destroy the created order. Notice that even as God gives dominion to humankind, he also explains that he's designated some parts of his creation for the good of other parts of his creation. Just notice that with me. Verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Inference being, destroy the green plants and you destroy the food source which God gave to those animals. God isn't just giving the planet to human beings that we might destroy it, but that it might flourish. The created order itself is meant to flourish. And yet at the same time, we're given a clear sense that the sole purpose of humanity isn't to protect the created order for its own sake. Again, read with me, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. There is a sense there that the created order, as well as being entrusted to humankind as stewards, is intended for humanity to enjoy, to consume even, if I might use that word. We are to fill the earth, and we've been given it for food, says Genesis 1. And all of that taken together does have a bearing on how we treat the created order. We are stewards of the world in which we live, and therefore we are, it is right that we manage it as, as representative rulers under the God who made us, but not to behave as though the earth itself is more valuable than people, because God doesn't seem to think that it is. Remember, by the end of day five, it was good, and by the end of day six, it was very good. There are implications there for our own worldviews, how we think of the created order, but also implications for our day-to-day -day lives. I wonder if you ever let your mind wander into fantasy land and to imagine how you would like to spend your life if you were given the choice, with money and time being no object, what you would do. And I wonder, with, with those kind of fantasies in your mind, I wonder what place work has within that fantasy. My guess is, none. Because you see, we often think of work as being an enemy, don't we? It's something to be gotten through so we can enjoy the good parts of life. Now we'll see in weeks to come, and we've actually seen in our home group studies recently, that work has been made difficult. That since Genesis 3, work is done by the sweat of our brows and through thorns and thistles. And we experience that in our day-by-day -day lives. 
But Genesis 1, at the very least, is showing us that that isn't because work is an enemy in and of itself. Even before the wheels come off in Genesis 3, work was part of God's good design for us as his creatures to to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so as you go into work tomorrow, your working day may well be quite difficult, maybe frustrating. Your studies may be frustrating and difficult, may not be as satisfying as you would like them to be. But God would say at the very least that what you are doing is a good thing, that work is valuable. It is part of what you were designed to do, whether you are in your dream job or not. It may not always feel like that. It can feel very frustrating indeed. But God says it is. It's baked into how he created things to work. Now, uh, we might be just about ready to, to stop there at the end of day six because the work of creating the world is done. Humanity have been made to, to rule the world as vice regents of God itself, and it is Eden, its life as it was meant to be. But it's still not quite finished yet. It's missing one very important part of what makes Eden, Eden. And that's because day six isn't ultimately the end of the creation account in Genesis. Day seven is. And that's going to be our final thought for this evening. Where is everything heading? Rest is part of God's good design. Now, on days one to six, God's work pattern followed a very tightly ordered regime. We've seen that by the the rhythm through Genesis 1. But on day 7, that pattern ends. And it ends for two reasons. Firstly, it ends because day 7 is a day of rest. Read with me, chapter 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God rested. And there is an immediate implication there, I think, from the fact that people are, remember, made in God's image. We're called to be his, his vice regents, his representative rulers here on earth. And so if we are to do that, if we are to, to be like him, well then yes, we are to work, but we need to rest too. Uh, that argument is made more strongly elsewhere in the Bible, perhaps, but it is a, a fairly clear implication of Genesis 2, I think, that God's pattern for things is a pattern of work and of physical rest. And some of us may need to hear that. That isn't all that welcome uh, news for some of us, I guess. We need to be prompted to rest. I may need sometimes to be prompted to rest, to be reminded that rest isn't an enemy. It isn't the enemy to productivity, It's part of how God designed things. But even that isn't the main focus or the main flavor of Genesis 2. Because we're told not just that we should rest, but how we should rest. We rest with a purpose. Read verse 3 with me again. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Can you see the idea there isn't just that the seventh day is a day of of physical rest, though it is. It is that that rest has a particular sort of flavor to it. The seventh day is made a holy day. 
Now, people have, have different views on, on that. People have different views on the idea of, of Sabbath, on whether Christians still have a Sabbath now in the same way as, as God's people did in the Old Testament. And if so, exactly what that's meant to look like. There are some communities, some communities in Scotland, actually, for example, where, where everything closes on a Sunday. And by that, I don't just mean shops and cinemas, but where swing parks are padlocked, literally padlocked on a Sunday. Others, like our own, would tend to take a much more relaxed view than that, where Sundays are just another day. However you understand the idea of Sabbath, though, if you are a Christian, it would be a strange thing if that day, the day you rest, was the day where you thought least about God, wouldn't it? And yet that can very easily be the case. Where we take the idea of rest, physical rest, good though it is, and make it an end to itself. Treat the goal as being doing as, as little as humanly possible for a day. Just notice though in Genesis that this day of rest, it isn't marked by the absence of doing stuff. What sets it apart is that it's a holy day. It's set apart by God himself, for in fact God himself. And so if you're a Christian this evening, and if Genesis 2 does prompt you to think about rest and about how seriously you actually take physical rest, well, I wonder if it might also prompt you to think about what that rest looks like when you actually take it. Whether a a day of rest is marked by, by time praying, or reading, or meeting with God's people to encourage and to be encouraged. Or whether rest, physical rest, is an end to itself, whether the only thing that marks that day apart is a lion and and watching back-to-back sport or box sets. Now, I am aware that all of that might sound like a a, a slightly niche idea, a slightly niche angle on, on rest, that we rest for a reason. But I'm going to say to you this evening that it really isn't niche. And the reason I know it isn't niche is that that Sabbath rest is actually where everything is heading. And that is not an overstatement. That's where we're going to finish this evening. We've seen the use of of, of pattern and rhythm through Genesis 1 already. Verse 5, there was evening and there was morning. The first day, that pattern's repeated day after day after day until day 7. Just look at day 7, if you would, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, and identify how day 7 ends. It's a trick question. That was nasty of me, wasn't it? Because it doesn't really seem to end at all. It's a day of ongoing rest. There is no, that was the end of the day. And that implies that day seven isn't just the final day in creation. The day of rest, the day of holy rest, is, is a climax, if you like. Is the end goal. And again, if you think I'm making too much of that, as as preachers can very often do, well, I'm not only taking that idea from Genesis chapter 2. In the book of Hebrews, we read that, that rest was actually the end goal of God's people in the Old Testament. God's people escaped from slavery in Egypt, if you know the story, and they found themselves wandering in the desert. And God says in the book of Hebrews that their aim... It was to enter into his rest. That's the words he uses. A promised land flowing with milk and honey where they would enjoy a restored relationship with their God and they would enjoy rest. Rest from being pursued by their enemies. 
Rest remained the goal. And even then, the author of Hebrews casts his eye even further forward than that first promised land. Let me just read you a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 4. So then, we read, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Can you see the rest remains the goal? Where we are heading, what we are designed for, is at least in part eternal rest with the God who made us. And that leaves us with a bit of a question. How do we get that kind of rest? And that's a key question as we read on in Genesis, actually. As we reach Genesis 3 in a few weeks' time, the wheels really do come off. Humanity rebelled against God. We rejected his good and right rule. And that had all sorts of disastrous consequences. Consequences for the earth itself, which was cursed because of that rebellion. And consequences for our entry into God's rest. To peace with the God who made us. But you see, in Jesus... And his work on the cross, says the author of Hebrews, that whole relationship can be put right. And because Jesus worked for us, we can enjoy his eternal rest if we trust in him. Living and reigning with him from ever. Resting from toilsome work. Resting from the pursuit of our enemies from death itself. And that has some important implications for us this evening. Firstly, if you're a Christian, that rest is just such good news. Don't we long for that kind of rest? God rescued you by the death of his son that you could have it for all eternity. Now that's worth rejoicing in him for. And it's also worth sticking with him for. That is how the author to the Hebrews finishes, verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive, he says, to enter rest. That doesn't mean that we work to earn our way there. But it does mean that we put effort into sticking with him. Continuing to trust him. To follow him. To obey him all the way to the end. To this eternal rest. And if you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, all of that is is relevant to you too, very much so. An author once wrote that, that humanity's souls are restless until they find their rest in God. And that is true. Peace with the God who made us, both now and into eternity, resting with him from, from toilsome work and from the fear of death. It is what all of our hearts long for more than anything else. It's why those existential questions I began with this evening are asked generation after generation. We want that rest. And the Bible says that rest can be yours. If you would only acknowledge that you are part of the problem that you too have rebelled against your maker. And that in asking his forgiveness, you would accept his work for you on the cross in order that you might enter into his eternal rest. If you've never done that before, 
Let me please encourage you to do so tonight. Let me lead us in prayer as we close. Our God and Father, we acknowledge before you this evening our creatureliness. That we were made by you. And we acknowledge before you that you are not like us in that sense. You are not creaturely. You are the creator, the sustainer of all things. And yet we praise you this evening that despite that vast, vast gulf that you have imbued us as people with significance, with value, you have called us very good. Help us, Lord, to have confidence in and to rejoice in your purposes for us as your creatures, we pray. And help us, those of us who have followed you, to strive to enter into your eternal rest. And for any here who have yet to trust in you, would you please persuade of the coherence, the rigor of your plan for us as people? Persuade us of our own rejection of you and our need for you. And please draw people to yourself that each of us here might find real and lasting, eternal, in fact, rest. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.